Please have a seat. I happened to be prowling around in one of the local shopping centres yesterday, just filling a little bit of time, bumped into a member of our congregation who's not able to be here this morning. We sat down and were chatting for a few minutes and he leaned forward and he said, listen to that. And I leaned forward and listened to nothing. And I said, what am I listening for? He said, no Christmas carols. Isn't that interesting, he said. Here we are in a shopping centre, which typically in the past, around this time of year, would be playing carols, some of them of somewhat disingenuous nature, but nevertheless, Christmas carols. Uh, but not this time. Something's going on in our world. Christianity's increasingly on the nose. The whole idea of Christ at the centre of Christmas is becoming increasingly problematic for people in our community. There are councils in, in our state here in Victoria that are trying to remove Christ from Christmas, uh, wrestling the idea of who's the king. There's no room for two kings here, they are saying. Just keep that thought in mind uh, as, as we celebrate the fact that as we gather this morning, and thank you, Beck, although I don't think I can blame you, I can thank you nevertheless for leading us in four carols. I think they were chosen by others, but um, it's nice to kind of revisit some of those songs that put into words the story of Jesus, isn't it? And, uh, and a shout out to the crew who organised the Wodonga carols last week. A significant number of those carols actually were Christian Christmas carols in sharp contrast to some of the others that we see on television. Carols that actually articulate the message of the gospel. People are singing the gospel. How good is that? And we want to try and hold on to that and encourage them. Well, uh, this morning I want to talk to you <clears throat> about some of the, uh, the eyes that look upon Jesus. But before uh, I do that, just uh, tell you that uh, in the past 20 or so years, uh, one of the downsides that I've discovered in terms of um, the work that I do as a minister of the gospel is standing up preaching uh, not so much week in, week out here, but over the years, something in the order of 1,100 or 1,200 times, there are occasions where I say things that do come back to bite me in time. Sometimes they come back to bite me when I get home. And, <laughs> and Diana says, why did you say that? And probably legitimately so. And other occasions when I've said something years ago that comes back to bite me years later. And that has happened fairly recently. Because many years ago, uh, when Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II was... Uh, happily and graciously going about her business, I would have said loosely to anyone who asks, I'm probably on the monarchist side of the scale. So far as I was concerned, am concerned, um, the, the whole way our constitutional monarchy government kind of works, works pretty well. Uh, I said these things before we had that revolving door prime minister thing happen a few years ago, both Labor and Liberal engaged in that, of course. Uh, and so I said, you know what, if, uh, if it's working, why worry about changing it? In fact, uh, I said, um, if perchance uh, Charles and Camilla, Charles becomes the king and, and Camilla becomes queen consort, I will shift my sympathies from the monarchy to republicanism. 
I was kind of betting on the fact that Charles might say, oh, I'm so old, why don't you do it, Wills? And, uh, and, you know, <laughs> and that would have been okay. But uh, here we are um, in this new state where, uh, where we have a new monarch. Now, having said that, having made this somewhat puerile um, statement, this declaration of disloyalty to the monarchy, which in another age probably would have resulted in me losing my head, so far you will be pleased to know I've not heard from King Charles about it. <laughs> he hasn't sent me any... Uh, uh, any of his uh, minders who came and knocked on the door late at night to take me away. I've not received any please explains in the mail, no phone calls. He hasn't sent me any messages on Facebook. Good luck with that, Charles, because I'm not on Facebook, so uh, you won't have any success there. As far as I know, my citizenship has not been revoked. I've not been removed from the electoral roll. I haven't been imprisoned. I haven't been deported uh, to a country less sympathetic to the monarchy. And neither should I be, because we live under a very benign kind of monarchy, don't we? And as we think about kings and queens and rulers and how our thinking actually is very much shaped by the experience that we have had, that is not true of people who live or have lived in another age and absolutely not what it would have been like if you lived at the time of Jesus. Because even though Herod, Herod the Great, who was the king at the time uh, that Jesus was born, even though he ruled under the authority of the Romans, he still ruled as an autocratic king and had great authority. And in ancient times, of course, kings had very great authority. They had the word of life and the word of death, didn't they? Whatever the king wanted, the king got. Whatever the king desired, the king was able to make happen. Those who were in favour with the king enjoyed his favour. Those who were out of favour with the king were well and truly out of favour. The king was the ultimate authority and as a general rule, that authority was guarded very, very closely. So it's not hard to imagine the potential conflict which naturally arose when Herod, who'd been named uh, the king, notionally the king of the Jews by the Romans, back in 37 BC actually, by the way, uh, he got a whiff of this idea, there might be another king of the Jews, what am I going to do about that, would obviously have been his first question. Because in Herod's economy, there's no room for two kings. No room for two kings at all. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. I encourage you to follow with me if you've got your own Bible, if you've got uh, a device, do that, or if uh, none of the above, we'll chuck it up on the screen. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. They're very familiar uh, words, but let me encourage you to listen to them with um, a sense of keeping an eye on Herod's engagement in this whole story. Chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he'd called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. There's an interesting translation there in verse 3, if you've still got your Bible open there. When Herod uh, heard the inquiry made by the Magi, he was disturbed. That's an interesting description of Herod's response, isn't it? If you hear a rattling sound in your house at night, you might be disturbed. You might be disturbed uh, by all sorts of things. I'm disturbed by how much it costs to fill up my car. Keep in mind that my car's got a 180 litre tank, so when that's down to nothing, I need to go and arrange a personal loan <laughs> to fill it up. I'm disturbed by those kinds of things. I reckon just thinking about this, um, to describe Herod's reaction as being disturbed is probably a little bit mild, really. And there are other ways of translating the Greek. The Greek word that's used here could equally be translated as Herod was frightened, Herod was uh, troubled, he was unsettled, he was perplexed. But no matter which word we choose to use, it's clear from the text and from Herod's subsequent actions that he found the idea of a rival deeply problematic. And when we dig into Herod's private life, it becomes really obvious why this was the case. Herod, and this just by the way is not a real picture of Herod, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> Herod, uh, Herod ruled as a, 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 what we call a puppet king. He was installed by the Romans. He ruled by the good grace of the Romans. And to be fair, uh, throughout his life, he never gave the Romans any reason to regret their installation of Herod as a king. He was an able, uh, yet he was a ruthless ruler who consistently served the Roman interests. He was partly Jewish. He was raised as a Jew, and so he was well acquainted with the Jewish law. Uh, but it would be true to say that many of the things that he did actually got right up the nose of the Jews too, particularly pious or orthodox or devout Jews. Herod, of course, is perhaps best known for the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. This, this is a real photo. It's a real photo of a model. Uh, and it gives you... <laughs> that's not funny. Um, it gives you some idea of, uh, of the scale by comparison to the other things that there are in the city. In fact, as you were approaching Jerusalem from a distance, uh, even some kilometres away, the temple would stand out and in the, in the sunlight, the, the white stone would shine and it was an enormously glorious structure. Construction was started somewhere back in about 19 BC. It took roughly 10 years to get it to a usable state and then it was continually built until uh, around about, let me just have a look at this, around about uh, 63 AD. So the final touches, the last little bit of paint of the trim was done in 63 AD, just in time, seven years later, for it to be destroyed. Disappointing. But it was a magnificent structure. That's not the only thing that Herod built. Herod was also uh, one, to give, uh, one given to constructing fortresses around the place. The photos that you see here are at Masada. Some of you might have heard of Masada down towards uh, the Dead Sea, towards the south end of the Dead Sea, a plateau on a mountain. And you can see Herod's um, fortress on the point here, uh, corresponding, of course, on this side. Uh, an amazing view. If Herod wanted to go down there for the view, that was the place 
place to go to. He also uh, built another fortress on the east side of the Dead Sea, the Macareus, which uh, we uh, are very confident as the fortress in which John the Baptist lost his head. And you can walk uh, to the top of the, the ancient tell or the mound there and, uh, and walk amongst the ruins of the fortress there. Herod uh, built the Herodian, which is another fortress very close to Jerusalem. Many scholars over the years believe that this is where Herod was actually buried. And uh, I'll come back to that in a few moments. Uh, he built another Herodian down near Jericho. So when it was getting a bit cold in Jerusalem in the wintertime, he would go down to Jericho. When we say down, it's about a thousand metres lower in altitude and so much warmer down by the sea, the Dead Sea. Uh, he built a fortress down there, a palace down there. Uh, he's well known, of course, for building the seaside town of Caesarea with a beautiful harbour on the uh, Mediterranean. And it's only as recent as 2007, believe it or not, just a handful of years ago that archaeologists discovered Herod's ossuary box. Now this, I don't believe, is the ossuary box. It's an example of one, but it was discovered uh, on, the Maca, uh, on the Herodian there in uh, near... Uh, Jerusalem. Uh, for years, hundreds of years, people have been trying to find Herod's uh, grave site until one day a very clever Jewish archaeologist said, you know what, if Herod had any kind of Jewishness in him, he would want to have been buried facing the Mount of Olives so that when the Messiah came, he would be facing the right direction as all good Jews would want to be. And so they started doing some excavations on, on this particular side of uh, the, the uh, palace on the, on the mound and discovered his ossuary box, the box in which his bones had been deposited exactly where they guessed, facing the Mount of Olives. 2007, that's not that long ago, is it? Interesting. Herod uh, didn't confine his building activities to construction. And, uh, and certainly not just construction of, uh, of Jewish um, sites. He built all sorts of pagan sites. He built statues, Roman gods, all sorts of stuff. Got up the nose of the Jews badly. And so there's a bit of a love-hate relationship in some senses uh, with many of the Jewish people. He invested heavily in their temple, but he also built shrines in Athens and Sparta and Rhodes and other great cities in the empire. I guess you could say that in some senses Herod was having a bob each way when it came to religion and when it came to garnering the loyalty of his people. That's his building career. His personal life was a mess. Herod uh, actually put his first wife away. Her name was Doris to marry Mariam, who was a Hasmonean princess. He had two children by Mariam, but when the children were very young, he executed their mother because he believed that Mariam was plotting against him. And so he had her put to death. To death sorry. The two boys grew up and experienced the same gruesome end some 30 years later when their half-brother Antipater, who had been born to Doris, said to Herod, those two boys by Mariam, they're plotting against you. And Herod, of course, insanely jealous as he was, had them put to death as well. It, it wasn't good to be related to Herod. As he came close to his own death, which many historians believe was actually hastened by uh, a sexually transmitted disease, he issued a decree in the, in the nation, in Judea, that uh, all of the nobles be arrested and imprisoned, 
and on the day that he died, they were to be executed. And why? So there would be an appropriate amount of mourning in the nation on the day of my death. <laughs> True story. And what actually happened was Herod died, the nobles were released, and there was great celebration in the nation on the day of his death. That is also a true story. So you can understand this guy who was at once given to these magnificent building projects, but insanely jealous, insanely protective of his authority and his power, and all of which confirms uh, what is alluded to in this text and is in fact later confirmed in the scriptures when Herod heard of this potential rival to his throne. Tell me where he is so I may go and worship him. Ho, ho, ho. And that's not Santa talking. Um, that was Herod. Uh, and further on in the text of the scripture too, where Herod actually, uh, what's the best word? Authorised, ordered, um, arranged, whatever, that's not the right language, but the two-year-olds in Bethlehem, any boy under two in Bethlehem, I want them all killed. And that's what happened, historical facts, because of his insane jealousy, uh, because he did not want to share his role as king with anyone else. So the question is, what did Herod, who did Herod see when he looked at Jesus? Those of you who were here last week, we looked at Jesus through the eyes of Simeon, a righteous and devout man. A man who God had prepared by the Holy Spirit for the coming of the Messiah. And when Simeon saw Jesus, he said, I have seen your salvation. Herod, by contrast, when he saw Jesus, he didn't see salvation, he saw a threat. And there's no room for two kings in my economy, as Herod's uh, statement or Herod's position. And that pattern of jealousy established by Herod at the birth of Christ was one which was followed by many religious leaders through the life of Christ and in fact contributed ultimately to the death of Jesus. You might recall the occasion when Jesus and his disciple, uh, disciples were passing through some fields. We find this story in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. Uh, it was uh, the Sabbath. They were hungry. They were passing through some fields. They took some grain and they rubbed it together. And in rubbing the grain together to eat it, they rubbed the religious establishment up the wrong way too because it was a Sabbath and you're breaking the law by doing that on the Sabbath. And it's just so often that Jesus does these annoying things on the Sabbath which continually got up their noses. They found it so hard to deal with him. Time and time again, Jesus ran foul of them because he wouldn't submit to their law keeping. He challenged their authority. He did things that they believed only God could do, but they refused to believe that he was God. He claimed things that only God could claim, but they refused to believe that he was God. The Pharisees and the religious leaders wanted a Messiah who would uphold the law, keep it perfectly in the way that they defined it. And woe betide anyone who didn't fit that mould. They wanted a Messiah who would rule with an earthly kingdom in the way that they wanted to see it. And they would have places of honour, no doubt, places of authority. But Jesus said, sorry, my kingdom is not of this earth. And if you want to be first, you need to be last. That's annoying too, isn't it? So they went out to plan how to kill Jesus because there was no room for two kings in their world either. And this pattern of response 
Uh, we see consistently throughout history, Jesus told a parable one time, uh, Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46, the parable of the landowner. A summary of the attitude of the people throughout history, God has sent messengers, his prophets and his son and has consistently found the people reject the message consistently reject the messengers, consistently reject his son. And why? Because they want to be kings. They want to be lords of their own lives. And of course, even though we're on the cusp of Christmas, these thoughts take us to Good Friday, the day on which the collective voices of the ages, if we can put it like this, and if you can imagine this, the collective voices of the ages gathered at the foot of the cross and cried out in unison, crucify him! because we don't want him to be our king. There's no room for two kings here. The crown of kingship is firmly on our heads. So be done with him. And the reality is we're not passive in this either. In all likelihood, we stand there and I hear my own voice in that crowd from time to time saying exactly, saying exactly that. There's no room for two kings. Years, many, many years ago, I read a book uh, by C.S. Lewis. Many of you will know it, The Screwtape Letters. Anyone familiar with this? Well, worth a read. It's a, 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 a fictional novel by C.S. Lewis that records the correspondence from a senior demon whose name is Screwtape to his underling whose name is Wormwood. Wormwood is charged with looking after the human being who is in the book known as The Patient. <laughs> And Screwtape is, is giving advice to Wormwood about how to tempt, how to distract, how to keep the patient away from the things of God, how to ensure that his soul is, is held eternally for hell and, uh, and, and damnation. And uh, rather unfortunately, from Wormwood's perspective, the patient becomes a Christian. One of the subtle ways... Um, uh, well, actually, there's many. There are many ways that uh, that Wormwood tries to undermine this. You know, bring along a pretty girl, um, the, the the temptation of money or something like that. One of the ones that resonated most with me, when I was probably 12 or 13 or 14, whenever I was reading it, was this one. The idea, the advice, the idea behind the advice is make the patient think that his time is his alone, and get him to resent any intrusions into his time, especially intrusions from church. Now, when I read that, I was convicted because as a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old, I was taken to church every Sunday morning. Our church services started at 8.30. That was the only saving grace. It was early, and, and that meant it finished early. But we were still there at 11 o'clock, and so I used to do the calculations. You know, we leave home about 8, don't get home till about 11. That's three and a half hours out of my Sunday. What are all my mates doing on Sunday morning? They're having a great time doing other stuff. This business of having to go to church, it's chewing into whose time? My time. And there have been occasions over the years, and you might, uh, this may or may not resonate with you, where there's been intrusions into my time uh, because of stuff that's going on in ministry or church or, you know, people needing things. And, and I think, come on, you know, this is my time. It's one of the temptations. It's one of those occasions where I've got the crown firmly on my head saying, I am the king of my time. There's no room for two kings here. Does that resonate with anyone? Don't 
Now, maybe I shouldn't ask that question. We don't want you to confess to anything in here, just in your hearts. And then there's occasions where I might look at other people, you know, similar age. Those ads on television for um, uh, superannuation, you know, same age, same income, all that kind of stuff. How come they're doing these things and I'm stuck doing this? Lord, why haven't you blessed me like that? Where's the crown? It's on my head again. There's no room for two. I want to be king of this stuff. Or when it comes to the way I use my finances, you know, I'm tight with my money. I don't spend it easily. And that's probably a good thing. Uh, but there are times where I'm too tight and lacking generosity and other stuff that goes with finances. And perhaps some of these stories resonate with you. Perhaps there are other things too that, uh, that uh, are examples of times where we've got the crown firmly on our heads and saying in our hearts, there's no room for two kings here. I could go on and give lots of examples other times where I've believed that I'm king of my life, and I'm sure that you can too. But we're reminded way back in the Old Testament, Joshua gathered the people of Israel at Shechem and challenged them with a decision that went like this. Joshua reminded them that the Lord had called them from the time of their father Abraham. He'd rescued them from Egypt. He'd given them a land that was not theirs. He allowed them to live in cities which they hadn't built. He gave them food to eat they hadn't grown. They pressed oil from olives they had not cultivated. In other words, everything they had came from the Lord. Everything that they had came from the Lord. It's actually good to be reminded of this from time to time. We talked about this on Thursday night at Thursday night meals and I alluded to it on Sunday night at the carols. When we're born, what do we actually bring into the world? Nothing. I've never yet heard of a baby being born carrying a suitcase full of cash or, you know, anything else. Clothing or possessions of any. You come into the world with nothing and when you die, what are you going to take with you? It's a great story. Um, this is a risk of a distraction, but it's probably worth it. Um, a, guy, a guy who said to his wife, when I am buried, I want you to bury my money with me so that I can have it later on. A million dollars, let's say, ostensibly, something like that. A million dollars. I want it in the coffin with me. And so his wife, when he died, organised uh, and wrote a cheque out for a million dollars. She put it in the coffin. The funeral director said, what, what's going on here? And she said, well, if he can cash it, he can use it. <laughs> but the reality is, let's not, let's not lose the point. Uh, we take nothing from this world either. Everything that we have belongs to God. Everything that we enjoy comes from the hand of the Lord. And Joshua, Joshua 24 said to the people, if serving God doesn't seem desirable to you, then make a choice. Serve the gods of the other nations, if you will. Put the crown on your head. Choose to serve the other things of life. But he stood before the crowd and said, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And in his sermon at Pentecost, Peter challenged the crowd with the same decision. God has made Jesus, whom we crucified, to be both Lord and Christ. What are you going to do? That was the challenge that Peter put to the people. And so in many respects, we stand today at the foot of the cross and need to make that choice ourselves, don't we? We can continue to shout with the crowds, away with him. We don't need this guy. We don't need another king. I want to be king and live with the consequences of that 
or we bow our knee to his kingship and allow him to be king in our lives. Either we reject his rule or we allow him to be king and lord of our lives. Jesus said these words, you cannot serve two kings. The demands that I place on your life as king are absolute. You cannot serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot uh, serve two kings. You need to make a choice. Who's it going to be? That's the question and we need to ask at Christmas time when the King of Kings came into our world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our choice is to follow you, to be obedient to you, to allow you to be king. And yet, God, we know even from the stories that we've been sharing this morning that there are so many times we grab that crown from you and try and put it back on our heads. Gracious God, forgive us for those occasions where we have assumed that we've known better than you, where we have wanted things uh, so badly that we've believed that you are not capable of delivering on your promises to bring good to us, where we have been jealous or envious of what others have around about us. Lord, there's been so many ways that we've taken that crown and jammed it back on our heads and declared boldly and brashly, there's no room for two kings, I'm going to take it. Lord, as we do come to Christmas, as we think again about the baby born to be king, we do crown you, Jesus, today. You are the one who is worthy. You are the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the great and mighty God, the one who rules, the one who reigns, the one who created, the one who gives life. And so again, we offer ourselves, our hearts and our lives to you today. Lord, our prayer too is for any amongst us in this gathering this morning who do not know you, Lord Jesus, who have been challenged by the reality that, yes, I do take, uh, take that crown and try and keep it to myself. Wherever your spirit is knocking on the door of a heart today, we ask, Lord, that that heart might be opened and that you might come in and bring new life that you might take that responsibility of being king from whoever it might be that's asking that question and grant to them a fresh vision of you as king, the one who will always do what is right, the one who rules in justice and goodness and grace and mercy, the one who is worthy of our praise. Lord, we thank you again for your word, for the story preserved for us in the scripture as it speaks to us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. 